our evolution, when we didn't guide life by distrusting our instincts and had to think about it and had to purposely arrange and discipline and push our lives around in accordance with foresight and words. Hello everyone, it's Megan. Hello, and this is Kaylee. And this is Soul Sutras, where we talk with folks about the gritty and mystical threads that have challenged, awakened, and ultimately compelled them to learn what it is they stand for. Today's interview is with Yardena Peacock, a leadership consultant, author, and trainer, and my dear friend, who's working at the intersection of healing, leadership, and social justice. There's a choice that you're making all the time as a white person, and like that's, a, that's something that you're granted that other folks often aren't. And so how are you using your body? How are you using your life uh, for anti-racism, for justice, for good? Based in the Southeast, Yardena has worked with hundreds of changemakers and organizations around the world, including years as an organizer at Highlander Research and Education Center, formerly known as the Highlander Folk School. Her work and research has revealed untold narratives about a different, more inclusive form of activism than the definitions we might read in history books. She believes in the collective leadership and power that comes from showing up for social justice in consistent and participatory ways. So without further ado, let's get started. So I first met Yardena in 2014 in Boone, North Carolina. She and I were partners for the majority of our over one year long 500 hour yoga teacher training. So welcome Yardena, we're honored to have you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So we're going to weave in many different sutras today from your work, um, from your past, from your research and from your social life. We're going to talk about uh, collective participatory leadership. We're going to talk about the radical imagination, how to uh, envision, use our imagination to envision the world that we want to build, as well as what systems do we want to dismantle. And we're going to talk about personal practices that help us do all of this. But before we dive into that, we always ask every guest on Soul Sutras, how do you relate to the soul? Is that a word that resonates with you? Yes, I think, you know, for me, the soul is about spirit and um, it's, it's about living into our purpose and living into why we were put onto this earth in this particular moment in time and how we can best you know, show up to that and be connected to the divinity within us and within others. Let's talk a little bit about your background, which is rich with diversity and experience working with legendary mentors and organizations. Um, before you identified yourself as a yogi, um, a coach, and a holistic healer, you got your master's in Pan-African Studies under the mentorship of Anne Braden. How did you get there? Well, um, when I, you know, I kind of jumped around a lot in college in my undergraduate degree and uh, finally landed at the Northern Kentucky University, which was just across the river from where I grew up, which is Cincinnati, Ohio. And uh, in Northern Kentucky University, I was taking cultural studies and, and I took this class, civil rights class, and that's where I met Ann Braden, who is a longtime Louisville uh, journalist, anti-racist, white woman. And at the time when I met her, she was in her 80s. 
And I, you know, came into class as a good student that I am, you know, all ready to crack open our book. <laughs> and she kind of told, told us to put our books aside. And I don't think we ever opened them. <laughs> and I, you know, I had really been grappling for a long time um, as a young activist with what it meant to be white. And Anne Braden mm. kind of embodied for me what it meant to be white and like how that could be used for good. And she really gave me a language uh, through that, you know, that first meeting time. Um, and she was just always so <laughs> just honest and truthful and like very one pointed in many ways in the sense of like, you know, there's, there's a choice that you're making all the time as a white person. And like, that's a, that's something that you're granted that other folks often aren't. And so how are you using your body? How are you using your life? Uh, for anti-racism, for justice, for good, uh, the good of all people, and not just stepping into those places that are really easy and privileged. And she, because she termed this the other America, that working for and working with and working across lines of differences and stepping into those spaces that felt uncomfortable at times and were challenging to um, our, you know, our own privilege that was a, a radical transformation that occurred and that was choosing the other America in the United States. Mm. I'm getting chills because you're speaking to so much. I think a lot of, um, I think I'm, for those who don't know, I'm about 10 years younger than your Dana. And so I'm witnessing this in a lot of the young um, activist groups and, and not even necessarily activism, just uh, groups of young people that really want to do good, but because they come from that place of privilege, they don't, quite understand exactly how to do that. So there is a lot of uncomfortable, uh, there are a lot of uncomfortable feelings. In our conversation with Diane Bondi, she said, you know, nobody needs your white uh, liberal guilt. <laughs> but I think that kind of is part of it um, until you really realize, like you said, Yardena, how to have a vocabulary and an understanding around your whiteness and, and how to use it in a way that's, that's not taking your privilege for granted. Um, well, yeah, Megan, and I, I mean, I also think, I mean, it's an ongoing journey, right? Like, white people have to constantly check ourselves. I'm not, like, a perfect white person. I haven't figured it all out. I make mistakes all the time, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So it's, like, it's an ongoing journey to, to un, I don't know, I don't know how quite to term this, but I've always thought of, like, racism as cancer, mm-hmm. and so... You know, that's a disease. It's a disease of the heart. It's, disease, it's a disease of the body. And in order to change that, you know, it, it's, it's an everyday showing up. And that's what Ann Braden really taught me was, you know, you just, you have to put your body, you have to embody <laughs> your values. You have to embody what you believe in the world. And that doesn't necessarily always mean like, you know, being on the picket line or going to demonstrations, um, but it but it means showing up in some way, you know. Mm-hmm. And I I'm excited to talk about um, the practices that you've developed over the years to help you help you learn how to do that and help you stand in that um, in that choice to do that and continuing to return to it every day because it is a practice and it is a constant. Uh, mm-hmm. your, so your thesis was on the leadership of black women during the civil rights movement. And um, 
This included women like Septima Clark and Ella Baker. Can you tell us what you learned about, about the leadership of these women and uh, women like them and how this helped you understand and perhaps rewrite your understanding of American history? I think for, for me, doing that intensive study was about uncovering lost women's voices that are not as prevalent in our narratives that we tell our children, that we learn in school, um, and that are often, I mean, completely left out of history books altogether. And so it really, you know, it guided me towards uncovering the text and their words um, and their methodologies, which are so different than this charismatic male leadership that is so lifted up in Western culture. And when folks who are coming into consciousness, who are, you know, wanting to embody this, you know, to embody justice, who work towards matching up their values with how they're acting in the world, and they, and they aren't like those folks that want to like stand in like the front line and like give speeches and um, be the rallying call. When they don't see themselves in those kind of leaders, they often will just never kind of come into the work or come into um, embodying, you know, the values that they have. And what these women that I, you know, found in my, in my work, like really, really lifted up was this kind of shadow leadership, almost this participatory leadership of lifting other people up so that people could be, you know, at the front lines and like supporting them. I mean, Martin Luther King Jr. was allowed to be where he was because of people like Coretta Scott King, because she was, you know, doing the support that he needed her to do in order to be there, you know, with his kids and family. Um, she was really, you know, supporting that. She was the reason why he was able to be where he was. Ella Baker, who worked for the Southern Leadership, you know, conference, um, who was, you know, lifting up his message and, and other people. And so women have often throughout history taken this kind of behind the scenes approach. And so then it gets invisibilized and not seen as important or as strong when really how humble that is, you know, to be like stepping back and, and to be lifting people up and taking people along, you know, in a way that's really deep and really broad and not just about like one person, you know? And so I think that's where we're really missing, I think some understanding about how, we can step into this moment in time and into history in general is because our understanding of what leadership is, is so, um, so big, so bold, so, so different than what really is happening behind the scenes. And we just don't, we just don't know what's happening behind the scenes so often. And so for me, it was a real step, like, ex behind, you know, kind of opening up the door to what was really happening to make all these, you know, big things that we know about happen but also these like really beautiful and amazing movements happened because these women were leading in the ways that they were. That was not about being in the spotlight. That was not about, um, you know, it was not about their voices out in the world as one person, but lifting up so many voices. Mm. I think what you're saying is, is probably giving a lot of hope to people who want to be involved, but they don't necessarily see themselves as the activist that we think of, like, you know, standing and yelling on the, on the picket line or, or like really being seen in the spotlight as, you know, there's a, contra there's a, um, 
a provocative nature to activism. And I think folks who don't necessarily like identify with that as being their role probably are getting a lot of hope from what you're saying because it, you're kind of like you're broadening that definition of leadership so that people can see themselves as uh, contributors to the causes that they care about in ways that um, are a little more like, you know, the kind of magical. Inclusive. Yeah, inclusive. The magic that happens, you know, just from showing up in small ways every day in the ways that you can. Mm-hmm. And that there's a part for all of us, you know, and it, I think oftentimes in, in activists and movement spaces, like that part has been less nurtured. Um, but what I learned from Ellen Baker, what I learned from Pepsi Clark, what I learned from Ann Braven is that young people are imperative and bringing in more young people um, and that women are imperative. Um, you know, queer folks are imperative. Like, these folks are imperative to be a part of, you know, movement building as well. And so in your life, you have found um, that your role is at the intersection of healing and wellness and social justice. And how did you come into that understanding? Yeah, I think it's been, you know, I think we all like live a, do- a lot of different lives at times, a lot of different lives at times and wonder how they're ever going to like, you know, interweave. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so it's been a journey and I feel like I'm still trying to figure that out, but uh, you know, I would say for a long time I had, you know, I had my yoga practice and that was a practice that really aided me and helped me move through some intense trauma and some addiction issues. Um, and so it helped me show up into my activism for sure. Um, and then I had my activism, um, but like the kind of intersections of those was, you know, uncertain. And I think it was really at Highlander Research and Education Center where I worked um, which is located, it's a long-time civil rights organization. It's been around for 80-plus years. It's in rural Tennessee, but it works regionally. I think it was really there that I was able to kind of show up as my, all of my multiple me's. Um, so we would do, you know, for staff meetings, sometimes we would do exercises, like embodied practice exercises that were about kind of getting into the tender healing that needed to happen in, internally in the organization to affect the change externally. Um, and then th- this is an organization that does a lot of workshops. Um, and so it's been a, a, a leader in popular education, with, which is a methodology that values the stories of everybody um, and that there's no, there's no real expert. There's no someone that knows, you know, more than the other person, but it tries to equalize power. And so in integrating more wellness and healing and reflective spaces in, in the ways that we were teaching, you know, how and training activists and organizers um, to incorporate more methods of embodied leadership, to incorporate more breath work, to incorporate more body awareness exercises, to incorporate more reflection and pause, to incorporate more love and affirmation of each other. Mm. I think that was really the place where kind of all those things kind of came together. And Which is interesting because that's also the place that really inspired me to 
write my thesis um, because that's a place where all of those women that I, you know, have lifted up really went, you know, have been on that soil and in that place and in in, in the building of the history of that place. So, yeah. What was it like to be in a place that had such a legacy? I mean, it it was a lot of different things, you know, (laughs) there's kind of a weight in many ways Mm -hmm. for an organization that's been around for that long to be carrying, you know, it's a, so much history, which can be really contradictory and complicated. Um, How so? And, and, well, I mean, I think that, you know, this work is, I mean, this work is trauma work, Mm. you know, and we have not taken the time to treat it as such. Mm. And so the, the spaces for healing have been, you know, definitely like around the table and culture has been a big part of movement work forever. And I would, I would say culture and art, you know, have been, have been the healing, you know, work, mm-hmm. but the processing through the trauma um, has not, there hasn't been that much of a focus on it in the past. And I feel like it is getting better, but we haven't really been able to hold space for folks pain. And so then that just kind of gets, consumed within the body and then it shows up as disease and then that diseases are organizing and diseases our relationships um, sometimes oftentimes without us even knowing what the root reason is for um, and I mean I would say that trauma really you know comes from white supremacy which you know divides us and doesn't doesn't really want us to show up to each other uh, and, and that's the way that I think organizations right now are, they deal with trauma is that it's like, you know, saying that it feels really uncomfortable to deal with within organization. It's something that, you know, activists, organizers, change makers are asked to kind of take care of themselves behind closed doors, mm-hmm. but the space isn't really provided within the organization. And so then there's suffering that happens. Yeah. So I think it's really, the, a, you know, the, a culture. There's not a culture of, of self-care. It's something that you do, but don't talk about or, you know, don't bring it to work. And I would, yeah, and I wouldn't even call it self-care. I would, I really like to pair self-care with community care mm-hmm. because caring and healing is not something that happens individually. It's something that happens in community. Like we don't do it on our own, you know? Yeah. So how do you think, whenever you mentioned, or whenever you said, um, you know, we're still learning how to hold space um, and recognize that we're not just dealing with, you know, laws that need to be changed. What we're dealing with is uh, trauma that's been inherited, um, you know, throughout the generations, and we're still learning how to hold space for that. I'm thinking of the story that just happened um, at Yale where there was a dishwasher who you know, it's been a really tough week <laughs> for a lot of people. And um, there's been a lot of, um, you know, police violence and, and then violence against the police in the news. And um, there was a dishwasher at Yale who broke um, a stained glass picture um, that was romanticizing slavery. You know, it had like the the pastoral picture of the cotton fields um, and it angered cool. him. Did you, did you hear that story? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, I, you know, there was, a lot, a lot of people were pointing the finger and saying, you know, that was not an appropriate way to handle it. Um, and I think that the folks who had that reaction, I think that that's evidence of the fact that we're still learning how to hold space for the anger that people are feeling, for the pain that people are feeling. 
we're still learning how to hold space for those emotions. And, and it's easier to, to say, you know, that wasn't an appropriate reaction. It's easier to do that than it is to say, okay, I hear you. I, I see your anger. I acknowledge that. Or also that I'm a part of that history <laughs> that you're smashing. I was a part of the reason why you were enslaved yeah. as a white person, you know, for a white person to say that or to acknowledge that. I think that's, you know, very painful. Yeah. Right. Because it, it requires that, um, you know, white folks get really real about the trauma that they've inherited. And, um, you know, even though we live in a culture of white supremacy, um, if, if your, you know, privilege and your freedom is, is reliant upon the oppression of other groups, then there's, there's absolutely pain <laughs> associated with that. I don't think that, um, you know, a healthy culture you know, a culture that is comprised of healthy people, people that are really, really um, in touch with themselves would feel the need, you know, to suppress other people as, as, as we have in this country, you know. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I guess I would also say it's not just trauma we've inherited, it's trauma we've enacted. And, and that's trauma as well. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it's interesting, like the incident that you bring up, because I mean, my thing is, well, I mean, who cares? Smash the window. <laughs> right. I mean, I, like, like Bree Newsom, you know, who climbed the flagpole and took down the Confederate flag. Um, these are symbols of, these are symbols of systems that have not been dismantled. And if that's what, like, that's the action, you know, that we're getting all up in arms about, then we have a problem because people are dying. Right. And, you know, black people and brown people are dying at a genocidal rate. Right. Right. So, so let's great. To, I'm glad the window was smashed. Right. <laughs> let's dismantle that system. Let's choose to, to turn our focus to what actually needs, what actually should be appalling. So can you talk about, um, you know, for people in general, but then also for white folks specifically, um, can you talk about the, the distinction between using, you know, yoga, holistic healing practices, spiritual practices to, to help individuals work through their trauma and work through their suffering? Um, and then taking that off of the mat, as I like to say, and then using these practices to engage more deeply with, with the world and and enact the changes that, that need to be made. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think that personal practice is so imperative. And I think that can look a lot of different ways. But over the years, I've found that, um, you know, personal practice connects us to our divinity, you know, like despite our mistakes, despite, you know, where we come from or who we are. It, it connects us to each other in this, like, wider web, right? I think personal practice is so important, um, and that can look a lot of different ways. But I, the way that I like to think about wellness 
is wellness is anything that is going to connect you with yourself on a deeper level and each other on a deeper level. Um, now, how to bring that kind of out, you know, beyond. So I think one thing is that, you know, you need to have personal practice. And personal practices are really important to helping you step into discomfort, which I believe discomfort is really important in our, um, our growing and our transformation as human beings, our evolution, right, into affecting real change, both inside and out. What is a specific example of, of a practice that, that you mm-hmm. offer or that you yourself practice? So one thing that I, for the past, you know, so I would say two weeks um, in the wake of so many more violent killings of Black people and, um, you know, what's happened with Orlando and, you know, the, the police being shot mm-hmm. is that I've asked, you know, folks to connect to practice as a way to step into their courage. And so for me, like that has been really key is that you know, practice meditation, showing up to meditation, showing up to, um, you know, yoga asana, showing up to pranayama, showing up to like journaling. That helps me connect to my power and courage and vulnerability as a human being and as a white person. And that, that allows me to step into leadership in a bigger way. You know, there's a, an urgency that exists in this time that we live in and you know it kind of rises and falls but when to for change makers there's a real constant urgency and what happens in urgency is that there is this adrenaline that is flooded into people's systems into how people are working which is really unsustainable right Mm -hmm. and that is at the times when we kind of step away from those practices and become these really reactionary leaders. Uh, And I just want to give you an example. So, you know, a friend of mine had reached out, you know, was very like on Facebook a lot and posting a lot and, you know, really just asking spiritual and faith leaders, you know, that were white to like stand up and show up and be vulnerable and stand in their leadership as I was trying to do myself over these past few weeks even more um, as, as these killings just continue. And, you know, I was feeling all of that, like that intensity and that urgency. And, you know, I, I knew I hadn't practiced that day and I was like, oh, I'll get to it. I have like all these things I need to like get done first though. And a friend of mine had reached out and said, you know, can you pray because we have lost somebody, another activist who has died because of, you know, over, because of alcohol abuse, abuse, depression, Mm -hmm. and, you know, mental, mental health issues, can you light a, light a candle or say a prayer um, for him? Mm. And so her voice came into my head at that time. And I said, okay, you're going to need to stop. And so I stopped and I, you know, was meditating and he came to me so clearly and some other folks came to me too who have died and and he was at peace Mm. and the contradiction of that you know to be in peace 
at death, but not Mm -hmm. to be able to be in peace in life Mm -hmm. was really heavy. Mm-hmm. But it was so necessary for me to connect to, you know, also the the kind of, you know, unpeacefulness that I, you know, was starting to enact in the world because I was feeling so urgent. Mm-hmm. I mean, these issues are urgent. They absolutely are. Absolutely urgent. Yeah. However, if we are going to show up um, in this way of like 100%, 24-7, we're going to burn out quickly. Mm-hmm. And then there's not going to be much change mm-hmm. because we're not going to be around to change it. And that's for everybody, you know? And I think that for, for white folks, there's a lot of guilt and there's a lot of, well, you know, I need to show up because, you know, I, I, I'm part of this system. And yeah, you do need to show up and you need to take care of yourself to be able to show up and take care of others, you know, other white people to show up um, to what, to what needs to be done. I'm also like, I'm co-collaborating with someone to hold a healing space for activists uh, who are working in the Black Lives Matter movement, Louisville, Kentucky. And we're going to be offering some restorative and grounding practices, um, but also some like self-reflective practices and kind of connecting again to that, to the divinity and our ancestors and to, to gain, you know, courage from them. I mean, I often, when I'm, you know, it in demonstrations or at meetings, I often am calling forth, you know, folks like Ann Braden and, you know, like she's along with me. Mm-hmm. It's like, I know I'm not, in this by myself and like I definitely you know ask people to to lift that up to take the time to breathe to connect to their own bodies to connect to their spirit to connect to the ways that they're feeling to acknowledge that and you know maybe shift and change like how they're showing up because maybe they are like burnout or maybe they are like on the edge and they need some you know assistance um so my sort of like method, I guess you would say, is number one, we have to have practice. I and mean, this is not an hierarchical order, but one, we have to have practices. And those are both community practices of self-reflection and mindfulness and connection to spirit um, and internal practices. Um, we have to have rituals. And those rituals need to be a part of how we're doing work. So taking moments of silence. Um, you know, doing a grounding before a rally or a demonstration or a meeting, um, you know, being able to hold space for healing and for trauma to come up and to be able to process through that together and not, you know, push people off to that behind closed doors kind of mentality, figure it out on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. Yeah. So those are just, you know, kind of two of the, and then the third thing for me is really about community wellness, you know, that that this isn't something that happens in isolation. It's something that must happen together in order for there to be real shifting change. And so how can we practice wellness publicly? You know, whether that's creating an altar in a public space um, around, you know, some of these lives that have lost, whether it's, you know, having a, a reading group of folks to kind of grapple with some of these questions, um, coming together to create an art mural uh, based upon like what's happening 
but you know using creative creative expression and um, you know words and feeling and our bodies and feeling it in our bodies and taking you know the time to feel it in our bodies yeah you're speaking to um, a couple different things you know you're speaking to a paradigm shift a paradigm shift shifting away from hierarchical linear uh, kind of like uh, masculine you know ways mm-hmm. of being in the world and shifting into a place that's more vulnerable, but in its, in its vulnerability and in its, um, you know, there lies the salve, there lies the, lies the medicine, you know, there lies the healing that we're all in need of, um, you know, the creativity and the, the, um, you know, the opening yourself up to guidance from those who've come before you instead of, um, feeling as though you have to have it all figured out on your own and, and that, you know, we're in here, we're in this to drive change forward. And it's more of a receptivity to guidance and how can we embody the change? mention in your latest, one of your latest newsletters, um, you say, let's step into the place of the radical imagination where we are brilliant, creative, feeling beings on this earth for a reason, in the muck for a reason, finding our way because we are connected to a calling to birth brilliance into being together. So what Ooh, do you- girl, get it. <laughs> Ooh, well, those are your words, not mine. <laughs> and they're bringing me chills. What do you, what do you, what is the radical imagination to you? I, I think that when you were speaking of, um, you know, connecting with those who've passed, you know, connecting with your ancestors, mm-hmm. I'm kind of, I'm starting to feel like we might be getting closer to that space of radical imagination. What is it to you? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's not a term I coined at all. You know, it's something that's been around for a long time. It's it's that, you know, thing inside uh, that, you know, grew the black liberation struggle, you know, because when an enslaved person, you know, in the United States could imagine something different, <laughs> then that gives people the fuel they need to do that, you know, to change, to make the change and make the difference a reality, right? So the radical imagination is something that's been around for a long time. And um, there's, you know, there's a lot of, you know, Octavia 
Octavia Butler, and there's a lot of folks who are, you know, followers of her work, and I definitely follow her work. Um, she is a black science fiction writer, and, you know, she really talks about race and class and gender and sexuality and all of that, you know, in this way, in a science fiction kind of way of, like, imagining, you know, what could happen. Um, you know, if things go on the way that they do, or what could happen, you know, if, if things shift and change. And I think it's so important for us to step into that place of, of the radical imagination to vision and dream and imagine the possibilities. Because if we don't, then what are we doing, you know? And like, if we don't, then who are we? It's like envisioning who we can be is just as important to growing our leadership as like, I would say even more important than like getting a training, you know? Because when we can like, when we can evolve, when we can like make ourselves even bigger or stretch ourselves even further in our imagination, then it creates space for us to be able to step into it in reality. Mm -hmm. And what I have found over, you know, specifically the last three years is that so many people, changemaker folks, are really have lost that, you know, mm -hmm. uh, because of because of burnout and overwhelm and because of the amount of trauma that's in the world, you know, from clients, not clients, um, climate, you know, issues mm -hmm. and uh, you know, environmental injustice that's happening, you know, the, the earth is yeah. dying in the ways that the earth and the oceans and, you know, the skies are being polluted and people are feeling that in the ways that people, you know, bodies are being killed. And I think this is what, Megan, affects all of us when I'm talking about trauma is that trauma affects all of us, whether or not we even are aware of how, you know what I mean? How do you see that? We, we feel it. Energetically, we feel it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's yeah. the ways that we are divided on a day-to-day -day basis from like opening up and really connecting. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're just so used to this consumer convenience culture um, that we have really put that, we have lifted that up over connection and time and nurturing. I mean, that is why the earth is in the state that it is in right now, because we are valuing as a world, and I'm not saying everybody, right? Yeah, but we, we are valuing the convenience consumer, you know, consumer benefits, quote unquote, you know, over the deep root Low, you know, ecosystem, the ecosystem and how like ecosystems happen slowly, right? Mm -hmm. We want the fast, quick cure. We want the fast, quick connection. We want the fast, quick outcome. And we don't get that and we suffer. Do you think that connection and nurturing and, um, and patience and time and joy? Do you think that these are, um, you know, our basic human nature? 
I mean, I believe that at our basic level, we are divine. Mm. And, and as a very small child, you know, that divinity slowly gets failed. I see that with my own children, you know, not so much my baby. She was um, like 11 months and just total joy, you know, but I've met him. He's literally with, a ball of joy. <laughs> yeah. His, his, like his dharma in the world is to give people joy. Um, and I, you know, I hope I will remind him of that, but, uh, but you know, like my five-year-old, it's like when he shows up in the world and he presents, you know, in a dress, you know, which is something that he want, that's how he wanted to present for many years, you know, and he shows up in a dress because that's the expression of who he is and how he feels. And he wants to be, you know, called they, or he wants to be called she, you know, at different times. And now he's going by he, um, and people are telling him, you can't dress that way. And I'm talking about kids here, mm-hmm. but are they really from kids? It's from their parents. You know, it's from, it's from the larger society. That's really saying like, you're different. You look different. You're not supposed to present that way. Like that's uncomfortable. Um, mm-hmm. So when he shows up as his full expression of his divinity and he's told that's not appropriate, that's not accepted. Like you are not a part of this. You're like something else. Then that, that's a veil, right? That's a shaming veil that then, you know, works to cover his glimmer. As parents, you know, it's our responsibility, sure, to have those conversations and to encourage. And, you know, we do as parents. However, it's the larger, you know, a larger cultural shift, too, that needs to happen that will allow people to show up in their fully broken states, in their fully divine ways. And and stop tearing, you know, tearing down and picking apart and critiquing, you know, others, but also ourselves. Mm-hmm. When we carry around that the continual self-doubt, the, the pain, the suffering, it leaks into our relationships. And I think that's why I've really, you know, when I said earlier that personal practice is imperative because we have to be healthy vessels to show up. And to be able to, I mean, that's our link to the radical imagination. That's our link to even like stepping into that place. If we can't clean, you know, the inside and create enough of a clear channel of love and support through our practices, then we're never going to be able to show up for other people. We're never going to be able to show up into the leaders who really, we really already are, but it's just so veiled. And what you're speaking to is so interesting. I've never heard anybody speak to it before, which is, you know, even in your privilege, you are suffering. Even in your privilege, um, you're still required to make choices to, you know, conform and oppress the person that you might be without even really realizing it. Being in a position of um, privilege allows you, it kind of puts you in this place where you have to conform. It requires a lot more effort you know, to, to work against that and to interrupt the systems that are placed upon us. You're benefiting from this system, right? But at some point, if you can acknowledge, I don't want to benefit in the ways that the system has told me, (laughs) um, I should, I should be benefiting. 
in, you know, like I don't want to be, you know, um, president of a corporation or whatever, you know, whatever it is, the story that you've been told, like, this is the way that you should move through this system. And these are the ways that you can benefit. And therefore this is the path that you should take. If you can use personal practice and, and your spiritual practice to ask yourself, what is it that I actually want? Then you can, then you can, um, you know, show up in the world in a way that allows you to embody what it is that you're truly here for, as opposed to just working the system that is disproportionately set up to advantage you in ways that you don't even really want to be advantaged in. (laughs) Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, because what you're talking about is, you know, consumer, consumerism and convenience. Mm-hmm. And that's what, that's what we're told, like, oh, you, you know, you should value you this. are privileged. Yeah, you should value this. But then when we have it, it's kind of like, oh, this is really not of value. <laughs> it's right. pretty empty. It's empty. It's empty. And it's, it's harming others and, and harming ourselves in that it's disconnecting us from our essence. When is a time in your life, a moment whenever you had that understanding of I'm going to choose this path, this divine path over the path that's been laid out before me? I mean, I think I really grappled with that a lot through college and my undergraduate, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, I grew up in a working class family where, you know, neither of my parents completed college. And so college wasn't really a discussion in our household, you know, and I always was a, you know, I also have a a theater background and, um, you know, was doing a lot of theater and community theater work, but was really like aimless, you know, not really sure what my direction was. And, you know, I went to so many different colleges. The first place I went to, you know, was University of Tucson or University of Arizona in Tucson uh, and my major was uh, I think it was like political science and then I changed it to theater and then I changed it to Latin American studies and then I dropped out and then I went to Cincinnati State and you know I I took writing and then I went to Northern Kentucky University and I did cultural studies which is kind of which is anthropology and sociology and you know I was just struggling like I was just I just did not have any kind of direction. I just didn't know. I was interested in so many things, you know, but I wasn't really connected to my divine purpose, right? But it was really when I found Anne Braden and a mentor. It was really when I, when I met with her and the, from the first day that all of a sudden I got like this, this root, rootedness, you know, and this direction because what other people do for us oftentimes in like a mentoring or a healing capacity is they provide mirrors for us into our own divinity. Mm-hmm. And because I was really on a path to go to grad school, I was going to study criminology. Uh, and she was like, why? What's that going to do, Yardana? And, um, and she had, she had, invited me to come to this event in Louisville and it's called a unity dinner and 
a fundraiser and a gathering for this organization that she had founded and was part of called the Kentucky Alliance Against Racism and Political Oppression. And I came to this gathering, I was transformed. I had never been to a gathering where there were so many different kinds of people in one space and so much love. Hmm. And I'm talking black people and white people and Latina, Latina folks and uh, young people, kids running around and Cornell West was a speaker and it was, it was transformative. I realized, you know, is that what I was really seeking was community. Mm -hmm. And I think that's often the case is that we feel really isolated and we're seeking community. And what are the ways that we can uniquely contribute to building community? Right. And so then it completely altered my direction. I ended up going to the University of Louisville and I was welcomed into her community because at that point she actually passed away. Um, so I was welcomed into her community by all of these people she had mentored, you know? Mm, And so then all of a sudden these people became my mentors, you know, to this day. And I think, you know, Louisville has been a place for me. I just recently moved back. Um, but Louisville has always been a place for me where that other kind of organizing, that real slow, deep relationship building Organizing has really been at the base of how this place works. And it's all, it has for a long time been, you know, cross, cross issue, cross race, cross generation, and that there's been attention to that. And in part, that has been because of Ann Braden. And in part, that's been because there has been so many, you know, leaders and mentors in this city. Um, I mean, this is the city of Muhammad Ali, right? <laughs> uh, who have been mirrors to young people at the times when they needed them and to, you know, older folks too. I mean, I think we need mirrors throughout our lives that said like, you are divine. You contribute something exactly as you are. Mm. Come, you are welcome. And what we're not perfect. Mean? It's not perfect. You know what I mean? But I feel like as an overarching kind of, um, invitation that that has, has been for a long time. What a beautiful and necessary gift to have, um, like you said, a community that is across cultures. And I think very importantly across generations, because I think Mm -hmm. with these issues that are emerging, at least in my community, um, you know, of suburban folks, it often gets uh, framed as like issues of new generation, like the new generations coming in and trying to agitate the way that things are, you know, like, Oh, those activists, they're just young and, um, you know, they have all this drive, but what a beautiful and necessary gift, um, to have a community that is across generations where everybody's collectively working to, to create something, um, and the young folks have the, the gift of guidance and mentorship from those who've gone before. Yeah. And they're mentoring us too, right? Like, I don't think it's like a top-down kind of thing. 
there's like a co-mentorship that happens and a, you know, a young to old, older folk mentorship that happens. Yeah. And I I just want to, yeah. And I want to lift up what you're saying about like young people coming in and agitating. Like there's a reason why they're agitating, right? Right. Something isn't working. (laughs) And from their perspective, they're able to see it really clearly because they, they don't have the, the years of, of seeing things as, you know, if there's like a, like a collective assimilation or like a very, very slow assimilation that happens with time where you just kind of get used to the way that things are. And so young folks have the ability to see it with fresh eyes and go, wait a minute, how did we let it get here? But then young folks in return, you know, need, uh, you know, wisdom from people who've lived many, many years. And so there's synergy that can happen. And ideally, you know, you work together and how beautiful that you were ushered into a community where that is the reality. So final question. Um, so this is Soul Sutras. Sutras means thread. What is one thread that you would encourage people who are inspired by this conversation to begin to weave into their life, to empower them to show up and, and um, create a world from this mystical, beautiful, magical, radical imagination? Well, I think, you know, in yoga terms, like there's something called the samskara, right? which are these ways of being that we kind of show up to over and over and over again. And yoga believes that when you, that you can interrupt these samskaras, um, the ones that just aren't really working for your life. And so I guess that is a thing that I would offer up, you know, is this, this question of why and interruption, interruption of, it doesn't have to be, you know, business as usual. Like, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be, um, you know, unhappy and, you know, feel forced to to enact or be a certain way. So I guess I would just offer, you know, that if there's something that is feeling really wrong in your life, like that's that inner spirit that's telling you this isn't, this isn't the right thing, you know? And business as usual or maintaining the samskara you know, is just to go ahead and show up day after day the same way. And if it's not working, you know, if it's not fulfilling you, if it's not fulfilling like your work in the world, then it needs to shift and change. And what are the ways that you can gather together the resources and tools to help you and hold you in the shift and change? Because we need you to be the best and absolute most connected divine person that you are we need you we need you as you are and you're beautiful and there's a place for you and there's a place there's a place for you in what you uniquely bring thank you Yardina thank you Megan thank you Megan this has been a conversation with Yardina Peacock You can find her at yardanapeacock.com. That's J-A-R-D-A-N-A-P-E-A-C-O-C-K.com. You can also find Yardana's virtual space for those who work and dwell in these intersections at Radical Well on Facebook. Thank you so much to Yardana and to Kaylee, who though you did not hear her voice, helped me edit this conversation. The music today was by Kala, as always, and 
Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, namaste.